Welcome to Doha Debates. In each episode, we present opposing sides of an urgent issue and try to find common ground. So get ready for a debate that is smart, spirited, civil, and respectful. My name is Joshua Johnson, and I will be the moderator for your debate. And today we're talking about men. Our question today is masculinity in crisis. Now, the word masculinity is going to mean different things to different people in different cultures and in different parts of the world. This debate is going to focus more on a Western idea of masculinity. Both of our guests are based in the U.S. One is originally from the U.K. Later on in the debate, we will welcome some global listeners to share their cultural perspectives from their vantage points in the global South. This summer has been big for women in business, particularly in entertainment. You may have heard that Beyonce and Taylor Swift have been doing their thing in concert venues all across the country and around the world. Barbie has made more than $1.3 billion at box offices around the world, and viewership has hit some very big highs for this year's Women's World Cup. So you could forgive men for feeling much like Ken in the movie, rather left out. And there are some good reasons for that. Studies have shown that men in the West are less likely to go to college than in the past. We are earning less on average than before, suffering disproportionately from the loss of manufacturing jobs, and are dying by suicide at growing rates, much more than women. There's also been a lot of controversy surrounding some of the men who are trying to lead the conversations about masculinity, at least online and in social media. One influencer named Andrew Tate is a self-described misogynist. He has nearly 8 million followers on Twitter. At the moment, Mr. Tate is awaiting trial on charges of human trafficking. So what does it mean to be a man today? How do we define it? How might we redefine it? That's what our two guests are going to talk to us about today. It's something they've been thinking about and writing about quite a bit. So let me introduce you to them now. Joining us from Tennessee is Richard Reeves. He is the president of the American Institute for Boys and Men, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His latest book is called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Mr. Reeves, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Joshua. Also with us is Professor Barbara Risman, a sociologist at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's also the editor of Gender and Society, which is a leading journal in the field. Her books include Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. Professor, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We're going to keep this conversation very conversational. You don't have to raise your hand and wait for the teacher to call on you, so feel free to jump in. But I have two rules. First, this should go without saying, but we're here to pick apart the issue, not each other. So no personal attacks of any kind at all. Second, and this is a personal pet peeve, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Please do not answer a question with a question. Every question must be answered directly before you raise other points. It's perfectly okay to think out loud if a question has you stumped. These are difficult issues. But don't duck the issue by pivoting to something else. Please, please, please do not answer a question with a question. Also, because it's timely, since the Barbie movie might come up, please remember that not everyone has seen it yet. So no spoilers, please. Let's start with the same question for each of you. I feel like when we talk about masculinity, 
you can ask 10 different people and they will give you at least 12 different answers as to what they're talking about. So let's just define that word first. What is masculinity as you see it? And is it in crisis? Richard Reeves, let me start with you. Sure. Thank you. Well, masculinity is both a learned and socialized way of expressing your gender identity in a society and to some extent based on the biological differences between uh, male and female. So it's a combination of what the culture tells us and teaches us about being a boy or a man and what to some extent comes with our DNA. Professor Risman, what about you? What is masculinity? I agree with what much of um, Dr. Reeves has said, uh, but I want to sort of broaden the definition. Masculinity is relational for sure, and it's part of a system, a gender system, whereas it's relational in terms of femininity and women. And so it's very much, it's very much important to think about it as something that boys learn as how to be different than girls and how what girls learn as how to be different from boys. And the core parts of that for masculinity are really the belief that men are efficient and rational and are less emotional than women ability to kind of repress emotions. And I think that uh, what's interesting is those measurements, even in the last 50 years, have started to change. And so we're in that moment of kind of uh, uh, a crack in this gender structure. Yeah. And I think what a lot of men feel now is that, look, I don't want to be an old style masculine guy. I don't want to be by and large a patriarch, right? But nor do I want to feel like I have to stop being male and that my masculinity is a problem. We are in a moment of acute and huge seismic change in the economic and social relations between men and women. And that is largely a wonderful thing. And we need more countries to do the same thing. However, you don't change those relations between men and women this dramatically, this quickly, and not raise questions about what does it mean to be a man. And what I will say is I think we've done a much better job of setting out a new script for women than we have setting out a new script for men. We're telling them the old script is gone, but we're not replacing it. That creates a vacuum into which people like Andrew Tate will always pour. Professor, you've noted in the past that when we think about masculinity in crisis, we may be missing the point somewhat because as many women will tell you, and as many people can plainly see, men still hold most of the cards in a lot of society in terms of power and influence. Certainly the pay gap still exists. How do you think that should shape the way we talk about all of this? I think that's really important. And I think this is at the core of where I do disagree with Richard. And that is, I don't think that what we're seeing is a crisis of men or masculinity. I think, at least in the U.S. context, but I think more than that, in the post-industrial capitalist world, what we see is a kind of economic crisis of post-industrialism, that good jobs that are um, allow men to be either providers or co-providers in their households, which historically we have required men to be able to bring money into a family to be considered an important member of that family. And who this is affecting is not those men who are running multinational corporations. It's affecting men who are less educated, not college educated, 
who are working class in America that often the history of racism and continued gendered racism, the way in which in particular black men face disciplinary racism in public schools, in fear when they walk down the street, those kinds of things have created a real crisis for the working class, for the underclass, but particularly for men in that class. So I see it as an economic crisis of post-industrial capitalism, and it's affecting men more than women because working class women have had the opportunity to move into pink collar professions. I mean, jobs that take some, but not a lot of education, but are relatively good jobs with benefits, x-ray technicians, school teachers, jobs that women, pink collar, I'm wearing pink, right? Pink is a symbolic color that women in America, in the West, at this moment in history, it hasn't always been this way, wear. And so working class women have had some upward mobility. They had jobs available to them that their mothers might not have or their grandmothers might not have. Working class men, particularly men of color, particularly in the U.S. context, black men, haven't had that opportunity. They, the male, traditional male jobs of manufacturing, where a, a guy could graduate high school and get a job working in an auto plant and earn enough money to have a family and even a little cabin on a lake somewhere, uh, as well as a bungalow in downtown Detroit. Those jobs are gone. And they've not gone in the last 10 years, right? The deindustrialization process started in the 1980s. And so their father and maybe their grandfather started having this problem. And so this is a, it is a crisis, but it's, it's not men and masculinity writ large. There are still just, for example, more CEOs with the name of John than all female CEOs. And those Johns are doing okay. Richard, how do you see this? Let me come back to you. Yeah, so let's. this is very useful because we are getting to some kind of productive disagreements here. I agree that it's no good just making generalizations about any group unless you're sure that that's true for everyone in that group, right? That's true for race, it's true for gender, it's true for class, which is, I think, the real power of what, as you say, is called the intersectional approach, which is to look at how those things interact and compound. So I agree with that. I think the value of saying boys and men, bringing this kind of gendered perspective to it is that we're not doing it very much because it goes against our priors. Our priors are to think about, say, race or class or whatever through the gender lens from the perspective of women and girls. And that's been a very powerful tool. But we haven't typically done it from the other side, which is to look at it from the perspective of boys and men. And of course, we need to do both. But one thing you discover from doing that, for example, is in 1979, black women and white women earned similar amounts and quite a bit less than black men. White women now earn much more than black men. For every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man in the US earns 84 cents. And so that's just an extraordinary change. And if you weren't looking at it through the lens of both gender and race, and particularly from the point of view of kind of men as well as women, you would miss that important fact. 
And so all, I, what I'm arguing for is equality is just some symmetry in the way we think about this. And to say, don't stop looking at these things through the perspective of women and girls, but let's also look at it through the perspective of boys and men and see what we find. The last point I'll make on this is that this is back to where we started, Joshua, the difference between men and masculinity. I don't think that upper middle class men, by and large, are struggling. They're earning more. They're marrying as much as before. They're sharing their resources. They're getting educated. But I do think that this issue about masculinity, this traditional role shift, is affecting all men. It's just much more acute for the men with less economic power. In other words, equality is easier for the affluent. Upper middle class men, men with economic power, are more able to negotiate this new world of gender equality than men without that economic power. But they're still having to renegotiate it. It's just much easier to do it from a position of economic strength. Professor, how do you see it? In my book, Where the Millennials Will Take Us, actually, what I found was among millennials, both black and white, half of them were in a sense of, I'm hearing different kinds of messages about masculinity from my parents, from my girlfriend. I'll give you an example from uh, an interview I did, which is men, young men now don't know whether they should pay for that first date. If I pay for that first date, am I showing that I'm a really want to be here and I value your coming out with me and I show you that I'm serious and I'm not just trying to uh, hook up with you? Or if I pay for that first date, are you going to say, oh, my goodness, you're a sexist. You think I, you think uh, I'm not capable of sharing the power in this relationship? And so I, I think that what has to happen for any individual is to try for himself to look at all these different mirrors and say, which one is right for me? And in for men who are partnered, it's about a negotiation with their partner as well. What kind of boyfriend or husband do you want? You know, how, how do I want to be in the world? Men of coming up in this generation and in the next generation are getting so many mixed messages about masculinity that it's no longer easy, one script to follow. I do this and then I do this and then I do this and I'm a good person. Now there's all these conflicting messages. I will tell you that I think that focusing on helping men kind of obsess about a better kind of masculinity isn't really the way forward. So how do we, Richard, how do we start to have those conversations without allowing the Andrew Tates of the world and his ilk to begin to kind of radicalize young men? I mean, it's not just Andrew Tate. That's that's the one that I kind of mentioned at the beginning. But you also have groups like the Proud Boys who were among the assailants at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th for that insurrection that followed the 2020 election. The Proud Boys kind of message to the men they recruited was as this very pro-manly space where they did not have to deal with all of these questions of femininity and gender roles. So it feels like there's a risk kind of either way. Well, if we start with the assumption that there are some real problems, economic, social, and cultural problems facing many boys and men in our societies, right? So we start with that. And that's not necessarily an uncontroversial statement in some circles, right? There are problems. Then the question is, how, how should we respond to those problems? 
And my view is that by naming those problems, acknowledging them and reacting to them, addressing them straightforwardly really cuts off the supply lines to the reactionary right in quite an important way. Right now, the reactionary right are able to say with some credibility that mainstream institutions and society doesn't really care about boys and men. If anything, they see boys and men as the problem. And of course, they exaggerate for effect. But right now, that claim sounds a bit too plausible. So one danger is that by talking about these issues, we actually we help the reactionary right, right? We provide fuel to their fire. Like, after all, we're having this conversation. Maybe if you're an Andrew Tate follower, you listen to this and you say, wow, I knew, I knew Andrew was right, <laughs> right? Or you listen to this debate and say, actually, there are sensible people who disagree about certain things, but agree that there are problems of boys and men which should be addressed. Thank you. And I think that makes it less likely they're going to go to the right. Igno- the, the way to ensure that a problem becomes a grievance is to ignore it. And so if we don't ignore the problems of boys and men, it'll be much harder for the reactionary right to weaponize them and turn them into grievances. But right now, I think we're failing to do that. I agree in many ways that we can't, by ignoring them, the problem, we're not going to solve it. And it, But I also want to reiterate that the people who and the boys, whether in Korea or the followers of Andrew Tate in the US and Canada, are not boys headed for Ivy League colleges and good careers and and stable marriages. They are men who are in precarious economic situations. And the way to deal with it is to create the kind of jobs, good jobs, jobs with benefits, health care, jobs that are worth not losing and make sure that men have available occupations that are not precarious in a kind of what I see of as an unregulated or too little regulated economy in the United States, we have so many jobs that are just not worth having in terms of making an adult life that are precarious, that don't come with benefits, that certainly don't make enough stable money to be a good partner in uh, in their families. And so I do think that the problem, marginalized economic men are the ones much more likely to turn to the what we call the manosphere and the kind of really misogynistic views of Andrew Tate. And so I agree with Richard that the long-term solution is finding a way for men all men, and not just college-educated men of college-educated parents, to find an economically secure place in our society. Uh, Where I disagree is the focus on masculinity. I am certainly not someone who thinks we are going to do away with the categories of male and female. Of course not. But I am someone who thinks that a focus should be turned away from how we do masculinity and femininity and focus more on letting people who are assigned male or female at birth have a wide range of opportunities in their lives and not be constrained by the norms that come with their biological sex. And I think by focusing on masculinity, that's what we're doing. Every month, Past Blue produces an original podcast for our unscripted series on the Security Council Rotating Presidency. In February, we spoke with the Ambassador of Guyana, for example. 
Unscripted brings you straight into the council chamber where the UN's most important work takes place. Each month, we speak to diplomats about their country's agenda in leading the council and their goals to achieving global peace and security. Unscripted is a podcast from Past Blue, a women-led media site providing independent coverage of the UN. Search for Unscripted wherever you get podcasts, starting with SoundCloud. Let me get to our global listeners for this discussion. This is great, and I would love to hear how some of our global listeners are reacting to this, starting with Louise Kanza, who is joining us from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Louise is an international development consultant based in Kinshasa. Louise, welcome. What's on your mind? Uh, there are many big parts, but let me try to dissect it a little bit. Firstly, I do want to speak about um, in the African context, and I know particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, religion influences a great deal of where the conversation is going to go, would go. And because a lot of religion is in old texts and it's very rigid, there isn't really much research can be that can be done. And there isn't really an evolution of uh, mindsets or an evolution of concepts um, when it comes to that. But also in our context, the danger of masculinity is very often more of a matter of a matter of life and death when we think of concepts such as femicide and sexual violence which characterize a lot of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man and that sort of uh, gender roles a lot of you might be must be um, familiar with the men are trash concept so there was men are trash as they had the hashtag and there was sort of this response that not all men are trash and the not all men are trash, specifically in our context, is like if you believe that not all men are trash, then you believe that Russian roulette is a safe game. Louise, let me, can I, I'm sorry, forgive me, because you, you just touched on something really worthwhile that I want to put to our guests. First of all, thank you for broadening this to more of an African perspective where you're right, a lot of those cultural views about men and women are from long-standing cultural traditions and religious traditions. I hear you on the men are trash piece. I think some men believe that they are not trash, that they might be recyclable, and some of the women would rather just compost them and move on. But I also hear you in terms of the physical threat of violence against women in parts of sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere that in the West seems so much farther beyond the pale, but in different parts of the world, like where you are, it's much more present. Can I just put that point, if I may, Louise, to uh, Richard Reeves? Very, very briefly, Richard, how would you react to that piece of what Louise shared with us? Well, first of all, I think it's great that uh, Louise has called in from the Democratic Republic of Congo because it couldn't be more extreme at the other end. According to the World Economic Forum Global Equality Index, uh, uh, the Congo is 140th in gender equality out of 146. So one of the least gender equal countries in the world on every measure. I mean, this is like on every uh, politics, economics, etc. Um, so again, a good, uh, just a great way to make the point that a lot of what we've been arguing about so far is very culturally specific. And on the specific question of like male violence, I'm so glad this has come up because I think taking the problem of male violence seriously is a cultural responsibility. Like every culture, every society has to take this seriously. Men account for 95% of violent crimes. And what's interesting about that is that's true regardless of the level, right? So, 
and and it, what what we're not going to do is change the fact that men will account for the overwhelming majority of violent crimes. What we'll do is reduce the amount of violent crime, as we have dramatically in many countries in the world. It's halved in the U.S. in the last 30, 40 years. Last few years have been a bit of an exception. Massive differences in all of the things that Louise talked about by country and by culture. And so the question is, how do you send messages culturally which are the ones which will reduce the risk of male violence? And, and I think taking that question seriously is something we should all be doing. And we should also recognize that in many countries, they're very different. And so the last thing I'll say about this is a tendency. So, well, men are more violent, men are more aggressive. Both of those statements are true, but unhelpful because what's more interesting is, well, why is there so much more violence then in country A than country B? At time, at time X rather than time Y. And it's because in certain cultures, violence and aggression are embedded in ideas of masculinity. They're valorized, they're lauded, they're celebrated. But in other cultures, they're absolutely not. They're criminalized, they're, they're, they're sanctioned. And so we've got to move to a situation where violence and aggression are not normalized. And, but that doesn't, we don't get there by ignoring the fact that it is a real problem and it is one that's very specific to men. Before we move to our next global listener, Professor Risman, how would you respond to Louise? Uh, I would respond to Louise by reiterating that our conversation about masculinity and change in gender relations is really about post-industrial European and American societies. And I think that it's very clearly very different in very different places. I also want just want to bring up the notion that religion is really important for shaping our beliefs about men and women in every society. And that religious traditions often valorize patriarchy and male heads of households and female submission. Uh, and that goes across all different religions historically. You know, I'm, I was uh, raised in a Jewish faith and historically it's an incredibly patriarchal tradition. But it has evolved in the last 50 years where half of all the religious leaders are now women. And so that even religion is a cult, has cultural evolution. And so that uh, working for those people of faith, working within their religious traditions to uh, take seriously sexual violence, male domination, those things are universals in some senses although how they play out is very, very different by region and place. Let me get to our other global listener, Jana Mawa, who is joining us from Doha. She has worked on trying to end gender-based violence in Bangladesh. Jana, welcome. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, so I think the debate was very riveting. I want to talk about masculinity a little bit more like it was talked about in the beginning. Now, I think Richard said that, you know, it's harmful to call out toxic masculinity, but I think Nobody's saying in terms of toxic masculinity, the term is used more of as in um, a way to identify the harmful attributes and the harmful way that it affects women and other people, the masculinity, you know, so um, it's like when you call out someone for being rude, are you being harmful? Or are you just saying, hey, you're being rude to me, and it's affecting me, it's affecting my mental health and my growth. Or so should we just coddle this rude person and just be like, no, you're not being rude? You know, do we use safe terms? 
So I think toxic masculinity as a term, I think that's where I disagree with Richard a little bit on that. I want to give Richard a chance to respond to that. Before I get back to him, could I just ask you to dig in on that, this idea of toxic masculinity? I know that what you're touching on where you are is very much the conversation that's happened where I've been in terms of the many different ways people react to it and whether or not people can even really hear what you're saying when you're trying to say that's out of bounds. What's it been like where you are and in the communities that you are just in, we're just hearing, overhearing other people's conversations when that specific idea, toxic masculinity comes up, what are the reactions like? It's interesting you say that because we don't have a term toxic masculinity in my language or in my culture. It's just being a man or it's just being someone in a society. If I live in a society and, you know, my grandfather, my father, he's just expected to act like this. It's not being toxic or masculine. It's just him being a man in society. So when he, when, if my father um, does something that's inherently masculine, like, for example, um, tell his wife to go to the kitchen and cook him food, which he doesn't, but like, if he does do that, that's just him being a man. Yeah. So they, they don't think it's toxic. They just think that it's just a natural, you know, like the women are trying to take the, their natural position of power from them. Yeah. Yeah. You That's uh, yeah, I I do, and and I'm I'm glad that you brought that perspective on it. That there are some parts of the world where the term is like, huh? They don't even know how to plug it into their 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 sense of the world. Professor Risman, could I ask you to respond to what we just heard from Jenna? Yes, uh, I think that's a really very useful analysis. That in in a kind of my the way I would think about it is male privilege, male dominance patriarchy, whatever word you want to call for it, a gender structure where men presume that they are simply at the center of the universe and women exist to take care of them, whether they're babe, you know, and take care of their children. And then the women are the other in a, in a very traditional way of uh, saying it. That's just so normal that they don't, that you don't have ways to critique it until you name it. And that's why I don't have a problem with calling masculinity toxic uh, or as a cultural, as a kind of cultural way of doing masculinity. A masculinity, a way men act that puts themselves at the center and presumes that they have a right to women's uh, subordination to, you know, to tell their wife to go to the kitchen and make dinner and bring it to them and then go and sit in another room while they eat it. You have to, in order to change that, as women are seeking to do in Bangladesh as well as everywhere else, one has to have words for it. And that's a kind of masculinity, a kind of male privilege that women don't want to accept anymore. And so that you having a language, naming something, when, you know, it used to be legal in the United States for husbands to have sex with their wives, even if the wives didn't consent. It was just called marriage. There became a, a word, marital rape. And then there's a word for it. It used to be men just treated women badly in the labor force. You know, when I, when I was young, if men stared at your breasts or touched you inappropriately, you walked away. You didn't have labor. It was just men being men. Now we have a word for it, sexual harassment, and it's illegal, right? And so that you have to name things. And so to take a, a normalized masculinity that is 
inherently subordination and privilege built into male and female roles, you need to come up with words in your own language that work, that name and say, this isn't just normal. This isn't, this isn't right. This needs to change. Well, let me come to Richard uh, in just a second. I think the challenge might be that it is a norm. Whether or not it's right is sort of the debate. And that, I think, is where the language comes in. But I also, Jen, I think hear what you're saying in terms of trying to sort of invent the language that you're having an apples-to-apples conversation. Richard, how would you respond to what Jenna has to say before we wrap up? Well, first of all, again, thanks, Jenna. Uh, It's a good illustration of just the different places that we're in in this debate in different parts of the world. I mean, it's... uh, I think it's it's an unusual American man who thinks that it's that women shouldn't be able to pursue a career, right? I mean, I'm not saying there are no men like that, but it's relatively unusual for American men to think. So it just shows us how far there is to go. But on this specific point about language, I completely agree that the use of language to call out certain behaviors is completely right. And words... When, when it's rape, it's rape. When it's harassment, it's harassment. When it's assault, it's assault. When it's you know, rude, it's rude, to use Jana's example. The question then is, does a general term like toxic masculinity help or hinder the cause of this debate? And I've come to believe that it really hinders it. And that's for two reasons. One, because you've then put the word toxic next to a very strong identifier masculinity, right? This is something very close to the bone. This is not your behavior. This is you, right? And so no matter what the protests are, the way young men hear that, most men hear that is they hear it and they go away. It is not an invitation to a conversation. And most feminist advocates now are urging us not to use the term because for every one man who's invited into a conversation by the question, are you being toxic? You lose nine. You lose nine men who just from the off the bat hear toxic masculinity and run the other way. So it's just tactically unhelpful. And the second problem with it is, and maybe this is a challenge back to both Barbara and Jana is, I have yet to find many people who use the the word toxic masculinity who can define non-toxic masculinity in a way that is distinct from femininity. And if that's true, then you have basically an empty category. What you're basically saying is masculinity is either toxic or non-existent. And that is a very, very bad framing. And I think it's because as soon as you start trying to fill out non-toxic masculinity, you run into some very good feminist critiques, which is, well, you're saying that women can't be like that. So I would invite those who want to use the term toxic masculinity to define for me non-toxic masculinity in a way that is very clearly different to femininity. I grew up in a liberal household, so different from the rest, I, as a girl, grew up thinking that I was equal to boys before I entered the real world, of course. But I thought that I could be anything. But boys are raised in a way to think that they're not just equal, they're above girls in, you know, in society, right? So, um, Richard, I looked to in, in your Twitter and you, um, you have a lot of stuff about, you know, girls outperforming boys in terms of education, and I wanted to get your perspective on it globally, because um, I think I have been one of the girls who outperform boys academically, you know, and it's a very normal thing for girls here to outperform boys because they have an incentive, because they're 
only alternative if they don't succeed, if they don't get A's and, you know, they, they get the best results is marriage or just like to be confined to the house. But boys don't have that sort of incentive, like because you have that blanket statement, boys will be boys or boys are it's normal for them to have behavioral issues. So obviously they're not going to sit down and study. So for them, they have an excuse for everything. So why do you think that it's masculinity, the problem when it comes to girls outperforming boys and not masculinity perpetuating or masculinity, the reason it's perpetuated that men don't give as much effort as girls do? Richard, let me let you answer Jana's question and then we'll wrap up. Go ahead. So the, the, the trend towards women outperforming men, it's women, not just girls now, in education, including in higher education, has been one of the most extraordinary trends in recent decades across not only OECD countries, but more generally, as you just said, Jana. And it really is a, a remarkable change. And no one no one expected this great overtaking, right? No one expected that, that not only would girls and women catch up with boys and men, but blow right past them. And that's obviously in many ways a positive development. But the analysis that you've given may well be true for your context, which is that the reason boys are behind girls in education is because they don't feel they have to try because they know they're going to be okay in the world anyway, because they're male, right? So there's a, they don't, the girls have to try because they're going to face a hostile labor market. And so they're going to have to do well, whereas boys don't need to do well at school to do well in the labor market. That may be true in your context. It is not true in advanced economies. Boys who do badly at school, men who don't do well in higher education, who don't get a good quality education, do not walk into a nicely paid job. If that was ever true, and it was a little bit true in the past, it is not true today. And so I think the presumption that boys aren't doing well in education because they're just not trying hard enough is in some ways analogous to the old view that the reason women weren't doing very well at work is because they weren't really committed to it. And I think it's just as damage. I think it's just as damaging to a positive debate when we start blaming the individual for not trying hard enough or not being manly enough or not being feminine enough. I'd like to leave it there just because what you've <laughs> opened up for us, all of you, is the tension in different parts of the world between the way that we talk about masculinity and that there are no one size fits all answers. I think the language that we use, the people who are part of the debate, the cultural underpinnings, the religious underpinnings, the threat of violence, the economics, the, the impact of race and culture, I think that's all part of what's complicating the conversation, not complicating in a bad way, but complicating in the way that an anatomy book is complicated, right? That you can't just look at all the parts as if they all do the same thing and interact the same way. I think that's good that you've kind of helped us pull those pieces apart. I do want to give our two main guests one last chance to chime in before I have to wrap up the debate, but this is good. This is helpful. And I think hopefully... This will all give people a little more permission to lean into this complexity, to complexify the conversation about masculinity, and to be aware that it's not one size fits all around the world. Professor Risman, I think that's one of the points that you and Richard Reeves were very much in agreement on. Before I have to let y'all go, is there one other point of common ground that you particularly share that you think is worth highlighting briefly before we go, Professor? Absolutely. I think we share very much a common ground that we have to have social policies that help men from marginalized backgrounds, black, many black men in America, uh, men without college educations, to have stable, non-precarious work that 
uh, includes benefits so that they are part and parcel of what makes a productive citizen in a post-industrial society and also makes a, a partner that is appealing for heterosexuals to a wife. And Richard, I'll give you the last word, one last bit of common ground before we go. I think we all agree, actually, Louise, Jana and Barbara and I, the the best way to frame this is not as a zero-sum game. There is a huge amount of work to do on behalf of women and girls. And in many countries of the world, that is really the overriding objective. But there are growing problems in many parts of the world for boys and men, especially those with less economic power. And the, the people who frame this as zero-sum is that you've either got to be working on behalf of women and girls, or you've got to be working on behalf of boys and men where appropriate. They are the enemies of progress. They are the forces of reaction. Zero-sum thinking is the enemy, and it is distorting our culture and destroying our politics. And we have, in this, as this conversation has shown, people of good faith can have disagreements and productive disagreements. But if we make anybody feel like we're, we ha we're not on their side, we haven't got their back, anybody in our society, then we're in trouble. Richard Reeves, Professor Barbara Risman, I appreciate you both joining the debate today. And our global listeners, Jana Mawa and Louise Kanza, this has been a great conversation. Thank you all very much. And thank you for listening to Doha Debates. I'm Joshua Johnson. Doha Debates is a production of the Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producers include Ashley Westerman, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, and Katrine Dermody. Special thanks also to James Woolley. FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. To learn more about Doha Debates, please go to dohadebates.com, where you can find out more about other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more. And also, please follow this podcast, leave it a review, share it with someone, see what they think of the arguments that you just heard. And if you like, you can check out my podcast, The Nightlight with Joshua Johnson, which is all about democracy, culture, and solving the problems that we share. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for listening.